Acts chapter 21. Go ahead and turn there. This is a message I didn't like when I started reading the passage on Monday. As a matter of fact, you could ask Etta, because I texted her as I began to work on it. I don't like this sermon this week. Then I went into Tom's office and said, I don't like this sermon this week. Told them why I didn't like it. Neither one of them said, well, then don't preach it. I don't know why I told them. If they weren't going to say, well, don't worry about it then. Pat, you just skip it. We can't do that. That's the beauty and the horror at the same time of preaching through a book, through Scripture, is that Scripture doesn't let you skip things. Scripture hits the hard parts and it hits the easy parts, and this week it was a hard part. I didn't like it. Uh, it, it, it is a truism. It is a fact of life. We never like the sermons that convict us. Those sermons that convict everybody else, well, those are good ones. Those that convict us, I don't say never. Some of us are super spiritual. Me, I don't like the ones that convict me too much. So this week, I had to look at myself all week, and, and I'm glad. And that has been the, the way Acts has worked all along for me. Every week, I'm seeing the church. I'm seeing where I fail, where I lack. I see where our church fails and our church lacks. I see where the church then failed and lacked. And every time God is saying, but here is the correction. Here is the redirection. Here's what you can do. We're still looking. I mean, all of Acts has been, as we've looked through it, all of Acts has been about looking at first church. It says it right there on the bottom of the screen. First church. That's, that's what this whole theme has been for 40 sermons so far, spread out over two years. And the implications for the church, for our church, and for all churches today. What does Acts say? How do we measure up? How do we compare? What was God doing? Does he still do the same things? And, and he doesn't, as uh, Dr. Joe told us. Was that last week? Last year was January, right? You've seen the memes on social media. I'm so glad that uh, the year of January is over. It seems so long. I, I, yeah, it was last week where he told us God does new things all the time. I mean, you, you go through Scripture, and, and he, he just almost never repeats himself in how he does something, uses new people in new ways, in new situations. But, so we're looking at the implications for us, but there are principles he always go by, goes by. God never changes. The message never changes. He himself never changes. So we read Acts and we look for the implications. And where we are now, and actually where we have been since August 18th, is this idea of wandering. Paul has been wandering. On, on August 18th, I uh, I went through chapters 19 through 23 and pulled out spots where I, I tried to show you where it is good evidence, proof, I believe, that Paul is disobedient now in, in this part of Acts. And that's okay. Let's remember, Paul wasn't Jesus. Jesus was Jesus. Peter denied him three times. Paul failed to be obedient. We are all failures at some point in our lives when it comes to following Jesus. The fact that this is in here is a positive thing. We 
can look at Paul and go, not, yay, I get to fail like Paul did, but the man who was the preeminent missionary sometimes got it wrong. At this point in the, in the story, in the narrative, we see, and I think I showed, that she, Paul should not be going to Jerusalem. He should be going to Rome, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more and, and, and just remind you some things here in a few minutes. He should be going to Rome as a free citizen of Rome, citizen of the country, missionary, not in chains, not bound to house arrest where people had to come to him and where he had to write letters, but where he could have evangelized openly and freely and gone to the synagogues and the homes, the house churches, and all the things that he had done in every place that he had gone. To this point in the narrative, since chapter 19, particularly 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 21, there have been narrative hints. Luke has been giving us hints of what's coming. And he's been given warnings, we read of warnings to Paul about going to Jerusalem. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. These narrative hints were telling us, were pointing us to the fact that Jerusalem for Paul at this time was disobedience. But now, no longer do we have narrative hints. In chapter 21, we have no. Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. He will get his command. He will disobey. Read with me. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, feel free to follow along in the red Bible in front of you. And if that's the only Bible you have, please take it home. We would love for you to have that as your own copy of God's Word. Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. Luke is writing, and now he's a part of the action. He's giving us some first-person narrative here. He's seeing this. He's there. He's in on it. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set, uh, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded, boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived in, at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Here's, here's our linchpin verse for this passage. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey, while all of them, with their wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing? 
weeping and breaking my heart. For I am not ready, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. This passage gives us a great example of God's message being clear. God's message clearly being disobeyed and an unclear, to keep that word going, use of faith. When faith is disobedience is the title. And that was the first title I came up with on Monday, which is why I didn't really want to preach this message. I thought, okay, some better title will come later on this week, something that's not as harsh, something that's not as controversial. And the more I worked, the more I looked at this title and said, now this is it. And you're wondering, how can faith be disobedience? Well, I am so glad you asked. We're going to look at this. Uh, the points this morning are not so much one, two, three, four points. They themselves are a bit of a narrative. They're, they will allow us to move through, hopefully, not just Paul's situation and examining it, but our own situations and examining them. When something happens, when there's a certain thing in, our, in Paul's life, why didn't he get it? When there's something like that in our lives, why don't we get it? The first, it's a long sentence. The four points are really just a long sentence. The first part of that sentence, when the message is clear. When the message is clear, and we, we see this in verse 4. We see a clear message to Paul in verse 4. I already pointed it out to you. I already uh, told you about it. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's, it's interesting. I have read a number of theologians on these passages. And every one of them will say this passage, not everyone, most of them will say, now let me stop and say it the right way, yes. All of them will say this verse says the Holy Spirit told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That is what it says. No ambiguity, ambiguity, no question about it. The Holy Spirit said, don't go to Jerusalem. And then they will say what that meant was it was a warning that it was going to be bad. Let's go back. Let's go back just a little bit to verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 21. Just so you can see it. So we can see why they would say that. They are basing that verse on these other verses. In fact, we need to base those other verses on this verse. Verse 19, 21 says, and I'll read it as it's translated. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia. That's the way my translation reads. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia. I've got a little footnote, though, and maybe your Bible does too, where it says that by the Spirit could also be translated in his spirit. Something you need to know about the verb resolved there. 
We don't really have it in English. Greek does. It's called the middle voice. What that means is it's a reflexive verb. It's a verb that happens to himself, to, to yourself. In Greek, actually, it is acting on himself for his own benefit or from himself for his own benefit. So the way we would translate this verse actually is that he resolved to himself in his spirit. Listen to that verse. He resolved to himself in his spirit. Or another way we would say it is he resolved for his benefit in his spirit. Paul made a decision based on his understanding in his spirit. Verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 22, continues this, this idea. Paul says, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. Well, I've got a footnote, and maybe you do too, that says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled in my spirit. Luke does something when you're not sure whose spirit he's talking about. In Greek, it's translated the same way. If Luke meant in the Holy Spirit, it would say in pneuma. And if he meant in your spirit or in his spirit, it would read in pneuma. Same thing. When it's ambiguous, when you're unsure, when Luke knows, hey, if I write this this way, they're not going to know if I'm talking about his spirit or the Holy Spirit. If there's an uncertainty, he always adds holy. Always does. If there's any reason to be uncertain. In this passage, there's reason, uh, there, there's reason to be uncertain. Because that phrase could mean either one. So why didn't Luke put holy in there to make sure we understood? He didn't because in the Greek, the way he wrote it, it was clear. In his spirit. Paul, in his spirit, decided to do for himself what he thought he should do. Chapter 19, verse 21. Paul was compelled in his spirit to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 22. No clarification of holy. But he says in that same verse, he continues, I'm compelled by my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit, see how Luke puts holy in there? He could have just put, except in the Spirit, in Spirit, in Numa. But he knew, Luke knew, if I just put that, they're going to think he just knows it in his own spirit. I've got to put Holy Spirit here so he knows the difference. He's compelled in his spirit, but he's warned by the Holy Spirit that he is going to experience all of these problems of chains and afflictions are waiting for me. And he makes this great statement of faith, but I consider my life of no value to myself. Uh, uh, finishing the course, all, wonderful statement of faith. I've got it underlined in my Bible because it's wonderful. But with all these warnings, over and over, that's what this verb here tells us. Over and over, Paul was warned, you're going to face troubles, trials, afflictions when you go to Jerusalem. And you just get the idea that as much as God was telling him no, 
Paul wasn't hearing it. And I don't mean he didn't hear it. I'm talking about, I ain't hearing it, God. I'm not listening. I, I, I don't know. This is absolutely what I should be doing, Paul is saying. And then we get to verse 4 of chapter 21, where it says, through the Spirit, let me find it, through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, a quick eye will notice Luke didn't use holy here, right? He, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't say Holy Spirit. That word's not in there. Uh, why wouldn't he do that? He must mean in their spirits. They told him not to go to Jerusalem. Nope. See, Luke knows his Greek grammar. He says the disciples, the disciples went to him, plural. And they told him through the singular spirit. Now, if it had been in their spirits, if they were the ones from their hearts only, not from God, telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, Luke would have said, and the disciples, through their spirits, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Not what he does. He uses the singular, through the spirit. Because Luke knew the people reading it in Greek would get it immediately. The spirit told the disciples in Tyre, to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Not a warning. Not a, it's going to be bad. Don't go to Jerusalem. Unequivocally, absolutely. Now we could go back and we could look at those warnings that, that Paul got in chapter 20, verse 21. And we could say those warnings were just warnings. That's all they were. They, they were just letting Paul know, when you get there, it's going to be bad. And by the way, the warnings aren't over. When you get there, it's going to be bad, Paul. But we can't do that because chapter 21, verse 4 exists. He was told not to go. So suddenly, those warnings aren't just warnings. They're not just informational. They are, don't do it. I, I use the analogy, I tell my children, my younger ones especially, don't go in the street. Don't go in the street. Don't run out in the street. Don't run out in the street. If you run out in the street, you're going to get run over. Is that just informational? If you run out in the street, you're going to get run over. Stinks to be you. Hope it doesn't happen to you, but that's what happens if you do it. So, you know, <laughs> up to you. That's not what God was saying. In these warnings, it wasn't, well, just know what you're getting into, Paul. If you run out in the street, 18 wheeler. That's not what that was. It was him telling him not to go, and Paul wasn't hearing it. And then, because Paul wasn't hearing it, when they get to Tyre, the disciples say, do not go to Jerusalem. The message was clear. Paul wasn't hearing it. When the message is clear, when the reminders are obvious, when the reminders are obvious, when everything around you is telling you this is the wrong decision, verses 8 and 9 and verse 16 give us this picture 
that everything, all the reminders, all the stories that he is recounting and seeing uh, the end result of playing out in front of him should have been reminders to what he was supposed to be doing. The reminders were obvious. Verses 8 and 9 say, The next day we left and we came to Caesarea, an incredibly important place to the mission of the church, where we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And we skip down to verse 16, and we're a few days on, and now we're in Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. These were all obvious reminders. What are you talking about, Michael? Well, Caesarea, this area that he's in now with Philip the Evangelist, was where Paul joyously reported the conversion of Gentiles. Chapter 15, verse 3. It says he passed through this area, and as he went, he's done, he's completed his first missionary journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem to tell, to talk to the elders of the church about what God's doing among the Gentiles so they can discuss the fact that there are a few Pharisee types that are saying, well, if you, if you become a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. Then you can become a Christian. So they're going to go hash that out in Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, Paul's talking about the Gentile message, or, or the message to the Gentiles. He's talking about the Gentile conversion He's, he's seeing everybody, he's seeing the results of the Gentile conversion as he goes to Jerusalem to talk about the Gentile conversion. It says he stops at the house of Philip, the evangelist. He's also a deacon, it says he mentioned he's one of the seven. Philip was an evangelist and deacon to Gentile Jews. Now I know that just made your brain scramble. Hellenistic Jews, people who were not Jewish by race, but were Jewish by faith and came into the church. Philip first was one of the seven that was chosen to pass out meals and and handle benevolence uh, to the Hellenistic Jews, uh, widows, in the church because they were getting kind of sidelined because they weren't for whatever reason, maybe a little racism, maybe a little overlooking, they weren't handled correctly. And so Philip and others, like Stephen, were chosen to be the seven to make sure everybody got what they were supposed to get. So Philip was deacon to Gentile Jews in the earliest first church. Then the first person we see Philip evangelizing was the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian was not Jewish by race. He was Jewish by faith, and Philip was evangelizing him. He became a believer. Then he was snatched away, it says, and he ended up in the area of Caesarea. Samaria, I believe, is where he went first. And he witnessed to the Samaritans, who were partially Jewish by race and kind of Jewish by faith. And then he traveled on up the coast and landed in Phoenicia, Caesarea, and witness to people there a whole lot of Gentile Jews. You see this theme? Gentile, 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 Gentile. What is Paul's mission? The Gentiles. The reminders are there. We see Philip's prophesying daughters. It does, the, the scripture doesn't tell, tell us that they did anything. It doesn't say what they prophesied, if they prophesied while he was there. So why would Luke 
put that in there uh, just to show how pious Philip's family was? Maybe. They actually probably became missionaries again as a family to parts of Asia. They were a, an evangelistic, missionary-minded family. But that's probably not why he put them in there. He probably put them in there in Scripture to remind us of the day of Pentecost. When Peter got up and said, first of all, young, old, male, female, dream dreams, have visions, prophesy. God is going to pour out his spirit on everybody. And here we have young ladies prophesying. So we see the fulfillment of that Joel passage. We saw the fulfillment at Pentecost. We continue to see it in the lives of this Gentile region. But it's also, if, if Paul's thinking, he hears the sermon of Peter. He hears the message of Joel. And he knows that what Joel says is they will be a witness to all nations. All ethne, all ethnic groups. All the people who aren't Jews too. I mean, it's, it's like Paul is walking through a gauntlet and getting slapped in the face over and over by Gentile, 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 Gentile. Paul, do you know what you're supposed to be doing? And in verse 16, we meet Manasin, a Cypriot, which means he's from Cyprus. Hellenistic, possibly Gentile. An early disciple, he says, Maybe he became a disciple at Pentecost. It might go that far back for him. Maybe it goes back to that first missionary journey where Cyprus was kind of the goal for Paul. That's where they were headed with, he, uh, him, uh, with Barnabas. He and Barnabas were working their way to Cyprus to evangelize there. So now Paul's getting the reminder, oh, you're a Cypriot. Barnabas was a Cypriot. And he's reminded of that split. And we talked about that, how that was probably not a good thing. I don't believe it was a good thing. And he's hearing over and over, Paul, do you remember your call? Do you remember what you are supposed to be doing? Do you remember who I told you you would be a witness to? The Gentiles. This entire section of Scripture, verses 1 through 16, is full of prophets and Pentecost reminders. Agabus is going to do it too. We are not done with the prophets and we're not through with the Pentecost reminders. And Paul should be listening. And Paul's missing it. He's willfully at this point missing it. When the message is clear, when the reminders are obvious, when the outcome doesn't look right. Verses 10 through 12, we meet Agabus again. He, he showed up, I believe, in chapter 11 to tell of a famine in Jerusalem that started a collection for the church there to help them out. Agabus does a, a, um, a dramatic prophecy, very similar to what a lot of the Old Testament prophets did. Sometimes they just spoke a message. Sometimes they acted out a message. Um, I believe it was Isaiah that got to lay on the ground and build models of an attack around him to show them what was going to happen. Uh, poor guy also had to run around naked for a while, so let's not be too envious of him. Agabus does 
and acted out prophecy. He takes Paul's belt and he wraps it around his, uh, uh, his own, Agabus' own hands and feet and says, In this way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Notice Luke uses the word holy. Nobody's confused. Is this Agabus' spirit or the Holy Spirit? In this case, it would have been ambiguous. It would have been confusing if Luke had just written, and Agabus said, in pneuma, in spirit. We'd have all said, that was just Agabus' spirit. But Luke now know, he knows, i got to put holy in here because this is going to be confusing. In the Holy Spirit, he says this. This is what's going to happen. Now, Paul was promised at the very beginning that he was going to suffer for the gospel. I must show him, Ananias is wondering, um, you know, God, this is the Paul that persecutes your, 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 your children, right? He's, supposed to, he's a believer now. And God responds to Ananias and says, I'm going to show him how much he will suffer. And suffer he has. Over and over and over he has suffered. So his idea, his feeling that I'm willing, that we're going to get to, I'm willing to suffer and even to die for the gospel, he knew that was a part of the plan somewhere along the way. And yes, believers, we should be prepared for suffering. We should know that we are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. If we ever stand for the gospel against the culture, we will suffer. It's no surprise. It should be no shock. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter did it. The apostles did it. They all told us. Scripture is et up with the fact that we are going to suffer for our faith. So it is no shock, no surprise, and we shouldn't run from it. When we're suffering for our faith. But. No. We don't have to go searching it out. Occasionally. Early Christians. Sought martyrdom. Yes. We should be prepared for suffering. No. We don't have to go searching it out. These early Christians. Some of them sought it. They searched it out. They were looking for martyrdom. They believed they were purified by it. They believed that something great would happen because they were uh, martyred. And, and literally, some people would stand up in this person's trial for being a Christian. They would stand up at the trial and go, I'm a Christian, kill me too. Dude. Not necessary. Clement, an early church father. Origen an early church father, told them, don't seek out martyrdom. Don't seek out persecution. It's coming anyway. You don't have to go looking for it. Even in Matthew, Jesus advised in Matthew his believers to flee the coming persecution. Why? I don't know all the reasons, but one of the reasons is Dead people can't tell other people about Jesus. Probably the biggest one. Uh, and another thing for Paul in this particular circumstance and situation, 
Paul can't evangelize Gentiles while he's in jail in Jerusalem. That just makes sense, right? He can't evangelize Gentiles while in jail in Jerusalem. Maybe he'll reach some Jews, but not the Gentiles. Even, even the prophecy that Agabus has told him, I'm warning you, I'm telling you, first of all, this tone of Agabus's uh, prophecy is not the, the, the warning type. You read back through the uh, Old Testament prophets, Psalms, and other places, you, you see a, a warning type of, of prophecy where it's, be careful what's coming. Let me tell you what's coming. This tone, very Old Testament-like in the way he does it, thus says the Lord, uh, it, it says, or uh, let me find it, this is what the Holy Spirit says, is very much a, t- uh, a prophecy of judgment. Judgment, not warning, judgment. In other words, because you are going to Jerusalem, which you're not supposed to do, you're going to be put in prison for it. You're going to be bound for it. And then look what Agabus says at the end. Deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's, that's God's little funny, not funny moment. Fine, Agabus is saying. Fine, the Holy Spirit is saying through Agabus. Go to Jerusalem. Be disobedient. When you get there, you're going to be imprisoned, you're going to be bound, and then you know what's going to happen? I'm going to make sure you get to Rome anyway. You're going to evangelize some Gentiles like I told you to. You're just not going to get there the way you should have. Let me clarify something right here. Paul could have been walking in obedience And the outlook still have been horrible. The promise was that he was going to suffer. The promise is that all believers will suffer. We will all be persecuted if we stand for the faith. That's a guarantee. So Paul could have been completely obedient here. And been told you're going to suffer. You're going to be in prison. That's the way it's going to end up. Could have been obedient. But let's go back to verse 4. Paul was told not to go. When the message is clear, when the reminders are obvious, when the outcome doesn't look right, faith can be disobedience. Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. That, that word, breaking my heart, um, it's not a Billy Ray Cyrus sort of breaking your heart. That, that, you've got to be of a certain age. Sorry, youngins. Chelsea. I called you young. How's that rude? Don't break my heart, my achy, breaky heart. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, don't pummel my heart. Don't crash it, cut it, beat it, hit it. They were like, like tearing down the walls of his heart. They were laying siege to his heart is what he was saying. Don't do this. And we could have the same response to anyone who is telling us not to follow God's will because it's going to end up badly. 
And we would say, don't do this. We all know this is God's will. The problem with that here is everybody knew it wasn't except for Paul. (coughs) Don't pummel my heart, this weeping and breaking my heart, for I am not ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. These are words of great faith. Great faith. This should be one of our mottos every time we get out of bed. I am willing not only uh, to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. That should be every person's willingness who's a believer. Great, great words of faith. And they are misplaced. Ironically enough, when we get to Jerusalem, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he gets bound, and he's about to get a beating. Does he sit there and take it for Jesus? Give you a hint. No. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this. He bails. Now, I don't blame him for it. That, was, that, that is a good defense, and it allows him to live longer and share the gospel. But here he's making this great statement of faith, and when the time comes for him to take that beating that he says he will take, even death, he says, uh, Roman citizen, you can't beat me. And he appeals to Caesar, and we go through years of this process. This great word of faith is misplaced because this was not Paul's calling it's not where he was supposed to be it's not what he was supposed to be doing he was not called to be the apostle to the jews he was the apostle to the gentiles tom told me about his call to ministry a day or two ago and i told him i was going to use uh it in my sermon i might have asked him but i don't remember did i ask or just state that was nice of me to ask so when he got called to the ministry in college, how old were you in 84? 40? Oh, it's an age day. Sorry, I'm picking on everybody for their age. Teens, right? Late teens? Okay, in college. When he got called to the ministry, he didn't want to go to the ministry. Y'all, none of us do. <laughs> Just, no. You don't, you don't want this job, okay? If you do, there's something wrong with you. If you want it, mm, there are issues. You, you don't, you're called to this, okay? Tom was called to it, and he didn't want to do it. So he taught youth Sunday school. Yay, I'm fulfilling my calling. I'm doing what God told me to do. And he was miserable for, what did you say, a month and a half? Not miserable teaching youth. Miserable because he was not fulfilling his call. He was not called to teach Sunday school. He was called to be a minister. Sunday school teachers are awesome. We love you, and that is your calling. No matter the age you teach, that is your calling. But that's not my calling. It's not Tom's calling. It's to be a minister. I've told you about my call to ministry before, 15 years old. In my head, I'm literally sitting in the back seat of the car, driving down, I believe it's Highway 98 from Daphne to Fairhope, Alabama. For whatever reason, that's my vision of my call when it happened. And I knew at that moment, without a doubt, God was calling me to be a minister. Now, I was 15 and stupid. So I didn't think to argue about going into the ministry. Okay, I go to church. 
had a great uncle who was a pastor. I had a great grandfather who was a, a pastor. So, yeah, okay, okay. But I don't want to be a preacher. And I can sing pretty good. God's <laughs> called me to be a minister of music. Yeah, for five years, that's what I did, including two years in the school of music at LSU, where I was absolutely miserable. Then at the age of 20, I was called to my first youth ministry position, a summer youth minister in Cotton Valley, Louisiana, way up north. And I taught my first lesson on my first Wednesday night, and I knew at that moment, my calling is not music. My calling is to be a pastor. And I've been running from it for five years, and I uh, surrendered at that point to the new calling after two years in the school of music, changed everything, ruined my life. But music wasn't my calling. And when I tried to pursue it, I was miserable. I was in disobedience. Even though I had great faith that I was doing something good. Even though Tom had great faith, he was doing something good in the lives of those teens. Those, those weren't our callings. Even though Paul believed he was doing something of great faith to step out, knowing he was going to be persecuted, knowing he was going to be imprisoned, even anticipating that he could die, he didn't care because of great faith. But when faith is disobedience, we are disobedient. Period. It's not faith. And Paul like us, was disobedient. Everything and everyone around him, including the Holy Spirit, said no. And his great faith was disobedient. disobedience. So what is our takeaway this morning? What does that mean to you? Thanks, Michael, for ruining my image of Paul. Well, for that, you're welcome. Because Paul was not Jesus Nobody was Jesus but Jesus. Paul wasn't perfect. Peter wasn't perfect. Mary wasn't perfect. See, now I hit a different age there, Peter, Paul, and Mary, but y'all just totally missed it. That's all right. That's all right. Wake up. It's okay. It's okay. You can wake up now. We're going to be going to lunch in about 10 minutes. None of them were perfect. Jesus was the only one that was perfect. So the takeaway here for us, for you believers sitting in the seat, for me, for Tom, for Amy, for other ministers, for all of us, is this. Sometimes the message is clear. Sometimes the message is just absolutely clear. Paul had the benefit of Luke being there when he heard the disciples tell them, don't go to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. Luke was there in verse uh, 13, or rather verse 12, when we heard this, when we heard what Agabus said, when we considered what uh, the, the disciples in Tyre had said, when we considered what Paul has told us already about hearing in every town from the Holy Spirit that chains and afflictions are waiting him, awaiting Paul, when we heard all these things, we said, don't go to Jerusalem. The message to Paul was clear. Sometimes the message is clear. Sometimes the reminders are obvious. Sometimes everything around us is telling us, didn't I tell you to do this? What are you doing over here? Isn't this what I set you up for? Why is this going on? 
Don't you remember all of, see all these things for Paul, Gentile, 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 Gentile. Don't you remember your calling, Paul? Sometimes the reminders are obvious. Sometimes the outcome doesn't look right. Sometimes the outcome that we expect, even sometimes the outcome we are okay with, isn't the outcome God wants. The message has told us that. The reminders around us have made that clear. And then we get some idea of what is coming. This is what happens if this occurs. And that outlook is not what we were called to. Paul's outcome of chains in Jerusalem did not fit the call to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. Sometimes faith can be disobedience. But Michael, aren't we called to step out in faith? Aren't we called to trust God for that next step? Whatever the outcome. I love the, the, the picture of faith that I always get when I don't think about images in the Bible. I think about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's always movies for me, right? It's either that or music. And, and Indiana Jones has passed through the, the, the penitent man, little booby trap thing where he's supposed to kneel and bow and the saws miss him and he rolls and whoop, made it. And then, uh, I might have the order wrong, then it's he has to step on the name of Jehovah, but he messes up because he steps on J, but there's no J in Greek. It was Y, so he's got, oh no, that was close. And he steps on the right one and he crosses along. Then, then the third one is, uh, I've forgotten what the prophet or what the, 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 the clue was, but something about the step of faith. And he's staring at this great chasm. He cannot jump across, he can't make it. It's too far. He is too, there's no bottom. And so, because he trusts his interpretation, of that passage, he knows he's got to make a leap of faith. And he puts his foot up, and it's great dramatic tension, and, and then he steps. And, and, and here's, here's the beauty of the director at this point, Steven Spielberg. Have you ever not known you were on a step? Or rather, have you thought you were on a step, but the ground was actually level where you were stepping? So you think you're going down, and it hits you quicker, and you go, oh, goodness, yep, just, just me? Okay, thank you, because that was a question. Um, the, the director got Harrison Ford to do that. He was, he was expecting the fall. He didn't know what was coming. And then he hits that bridge, and then they do this little camera angle change, and suddenly you realize the, the bridge was camouflaged. You couldn't see it from that angle, but you could from the side. He took the step of faith, and there it was. Sometimes God calls us to that. Sometimes we are called to a step out on faith. And sometimes we're determined to do our own thing and call it faith. Told you I didn't like this message. So I'm here this morning to not tell you which is which. I don't know. I don't know in your life. If you remember back to our experiencing God days, we were given five ways to, uh, to discern the will of God, 
five sources. Scripture, prayer, Holy Spirit, people, and circumstances. If Paul had listened to all five of those, he'd have gone to Rome from Ephesus and not to Jerusalem. If he had listened to Scripture, prayer, Holy Spirit, people, and circumstances, he would have gone. All I can tell you this morning is to be sure of where God is calling you. Hear the Holy Spirit. We don't get a written instruction on what to do tomorrow in this particular circumstance. But what we do get is an example of Paul who did not listen, who was determined to act in faith, and, and, and it sounds great, but sometimes it was disobedience. This, this whole idea here of, of disobedience is, is what we call sin. Paul sinned. This was sin. Sin is any time we go against God's design. God's design is the perfect plan. The perfect plan was for Paul to go to Rome. Paul went against that design and sinned. And it led to brokenness. We're going to talk about next week this a long passage of Scripture where we see over and over and over the problems that resulted from Paul going to Jerusalem. It was brokenness. It was the result of his sinfulness. The, 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 the beauty of Paul is he had a relationship with Jesus already. So he could be corrected. He could be restrained. It could be fixed. The unbeliever, though, has no fix for the brokenness. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you don't have a fix for the brokenness. You just have to live in brokenness. And you may try to do some squiggly lines out of it and fix it yourself, but it's not going to work. The only fix for that brokenness is the gospel. Paul knew that. That was his heart. That really was his heart to go to Jerusalem, at least part of it, was to share with his brothers and sisters. He said, I would give up my own salvation to see my fellow Jews saved if it would work that way. He was willing, but he needs to know and did that the believers should recover and pursue God's design by listening, by obeying. The gospel, though, is responded to by repentance and belief. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, and then you begin to recover and pursue God's design. And part of that, a lot of that, is being obedient day by day, step by step, in the little things and the big things. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, today is your day to repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and choose to follow him today. Give him your life, give him your heart, turn your back on your old ways, and follow him. Pray with me. Father, thank you.